Crossway Church Sermon Audio. If you haven't already, you can turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. The poet John Milton said, Loneliness is the first thing which God named not good. And his observation seems especially pertinent today. It's one of the great ironies of our age, our hyper-connected age, that we can have more people and more information at our digital fingertips and yet feel so disconnected and alone with no actual persons in sight. We're simultaneously able to connect with hundreds of digital friends, uh, some people thousands of digital friends, and yet experience moments of profound loneliness and isolation. We can even be in a room full of people like this one and feel all the more isolated. This loneliness raises two important questions for every one of us. First, does anyone truly know you? Is there anyone in your life who truly knows you? And secondly, where do you feel like you most belong? There's a a diversity of belonging in the world. Some folks claim to have found it at a, a Grateful Dead concert. Other folks would dress up as Klingons and Wookiees and go to sci-fi conventions to to meet like-minded souls. And others are never more alive than at a lively party or gathering. It's not uncommon to feel that if we only meet Mr. or Mrs. Wright, that, that then we'll be known and understood and loved, and then we'll belong. Or perhaps the most popular place to belong is the, the local bar where everybody knows your name, especially if you buy a round of drinks. Some are drawn to the city for densely packed, vibrant, electric, exciting city life. And others long for a simpler life, a quiet life, a quiet countryside, long meals around a family table. But to truly belong, to feel known, to feel understood and loved, it's a rare thing. And it's a precious thing. As a rule, the things that are most rare are also most precious. And all these longings that we experience, these longings for belonging, for these um, essentially human desires for community and camaraderie, they all bubble up from this deep sense of displacement that all men and women feel who are born in this world. There's a restlessness that's part and parcel of life on this earth, a feeling of being alone at times or different or apart. Of course, Christians can be all over the map on these things. We're all drawn to different events and locations and relationships, each having its own strengths and weaknesses. But all Christians have a greater belonging in common. That which unites us is far greater than that which distinguishes us. Or we might better say, he who unites us is far greater. Because for Christians, our identity, our belonging, are grounded in the one whose name we've taken. So as a bride customarily takes the last name of her husband and so identifies with him, we have taken the name of Jesus Christ and we belong to him. But I'm afraid that this belonging often gets short shrift in our busy lives. Belonging to Jesus is far more profound than we may readily recognize. It's an identification that goes far deeper than our political sympathies, our economic levels, our our sports affiliations, or lack thereof, our favorite pastimes. In this room, there ought to be Republicans and Democrats and Independents, all of whom are at least somewhat uncomfortable with each of their party platforms. And there ought to be Eagles fans and Steelers fans and even Cowboy fans. 
uh, as well as those, as well as those who think football is an overhyped game paid by overpaid men in funny pants. There ought to be hunters and non-hunters, uh, NASCAR fans and classical music aficionados. In short, there ought to be real diversity, just like Jesus' first crew of disciples. Now, this diversity is arranged because we've been brought together by a common Savior. And it's sustained because he's not only commanded us, but he's actually taught us to love one another. And it's lived out because he's joined us into a body, into a gathering, into a family. He's joined us to himself in his church because the church is the centerpiece of God's purposes and affections on the earth. The church is the, an enduring institution. It's the only earthly institution that endures into the next age. And so it's at the center of God's affections and at his work on the earth. Paul said it this way in Ephesians 1. The church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So the church, Christ's body, is full of the fully divine and fully triumphant Christ. Now, if Jesus says that the church is that important, we ought to understand why this is so. And it's going to take some work. We're going to have to, to look at our affections and at our priorities and at our schedules so we can see the church the way Jesus sees the church. Because when it comes to the church, we might say, to know her is to love her. And to love her is to love him. To know the church is to love the church. And to love the church is to love Jesus. So we're going to look at her. We're going to look at the church under three of the primary headings that the New Testament gives us. Uh, first point, it, oh, now I'm in trouble. Uh, the first is the church is a building, the church is a body, and the church is a bride. And as we look at the church, may we grow in our love for the church, which is really an extension, an expression of our love for Jesus. Because if we're going to love Jesus on this earth, we're going to love him among a particular people. This is not an abstract love. It's a love that walks out in our day-to-day -day lives. So first, the church is a building. Well, you probably already know the objection. You've certainly heard it often enough. The church is not a building. And don't we know it, right? Having met in rental facilities for 30 years, did we just now become a church? Well, of course not. The church is a people. The building is incidental, right? Well, that's mostly true. Um, but it's not at all the point I want to make, so I'm just going to blow right by that. Let's go to 1 Peter 2, verses 4 to 10. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. 
Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter tells us that the church is a building. We are a building of living stones being made into a spiritual house. We're a building founded upon a chosen and precious cornerstone, Jesus Christ. This Jesus who was rejected by men, he is the sure foundation of this church. And we are being built upon him. As our eyes have been opened by, the, by, by Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, we have seen the face of Jesus, the value of the Savior, and we have set our hope in him. In doing this, we have found our identities, our belonging. We once were not a people, but now we are God's people. We once had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. Do you see? Don't let those, those words sail quickly by. There's, there's a danger with words like that, that we can become so familiar with them that the, the impact of it fails to, to grip our hearts. We were not a people. You and I, not a people. We were homeless. We were nameless. We were faceless. We were adrift. We were without God and with hope and without hope in this world. And we weren't so much refugees as reckless rebels fighting against God. And then our Savior came. And he became like us. He too was homeless. His own people rejected him. The crowds came to reject him. His disciples abandoned him in his moment of greatest needs. The authorities persecuted him. They reviled him. They crucified him. And his isolation and punishment became not merely our salvation, but the grounds for our new identity. We now know who we are because we know whose we are. We have found our identities in being loved by God. And we proclaim His excellencies. Who could be more excellent than the one who has rescued us from darkness and brought us into His marvelous light? What could possibly be more excellent? And what higher calling could we have as people created in God's image than to proclaim His excellencies? So the church is a building. And it's a building built by God to proclaim His excellencies. That is our purpose. That's our priority. And it also provides us with God's perspective. The church is about God and His glory. This fights against a, a popular perspective shift that's taken place. As religions become more privatized, we talk more about our own personal beliefs. The church has come to be seen more and more as a, a, just another service provider. So you go to your mechanic to get your car serviced. And you go to your doctor to get your um, health serviced. And then you go to your church and your pastors to get your spiritual needs serviced. And churches are then examinated and evaluated by how well they do at meeting these perceived needs. But the church is not a spiritual service provider. We are a spiritual house, a publicly identifiable building of persons who have been saved by God's grace and called together to grow in faith and love for one another. We're not just a gathering of Christians, a loose collection of living stones, but we've been built together into an identifiable unity. There's some similarity here to the Trinity. Pete helped us to understand that. when We we cannot think of God's threeness without thinking of the one God. And we can't think of the one God without thinking of the three persons in the Godhead. Well, so too, we shouldn't consider our Christianity apart from the church. Uh, We should uh, not consider the church apart from the Christians who compose it. That's true both universally 
every brother and sister, everyone who has genuine saving faith in Jesus Christ around the world for all time is a brother or sister. And it's especially true locally. We are living out our faith with these Christians in this place. John Stott said it well in his book, The Living Church. I trust that none of my readers is that grotesque anomaly, an unchurched Christian. The New Testament knows nothing of such a person. For the church lies at the very center of the eternal purpose of God. It is not a divine afterthought. It is not an accident of history. On the contrary, the church is God's new community. So when God saves us, he saves us into a people, a people of his own making. We are a spiritual house, not a lumberyard with pieces scattered about. We can no sooner walk out our Christian life apart from the church than we can walk out our humanity apart from life on this earth. We have been specially located by God, placed into an environment of his choosing. My wife, Lori, was recently uh, talking with another mom at gymnastics class, and she shared her family had been doing, doing church at home for the past while. And she made it clear that they, they hadn't given up on Jesus, but they were just disillusioned with the church. So they decided it was best to just stay home and worship together as a family. Well, if we had a chance to talk with this family, we'd likely hear some sad stories, perhaps some exceptionally sad stories, and we could probably sympathize with their struggles. But if we were to be faithful counselors, if we were to be biblical, we would need to tell them that they've cut themselves off from the primary means of grace that God has appointed for his people on this earth. They have removed themselves from fellowship and from leadership and from all of the one another's of Scripture. And they are endangering their souls and the souls of their children. Where would we be without the church, the spiritual house that the Lord is building? Now, to be sure, there can be challenges and problems in this world. And so we might face a season of ill health or, or other truly exceptional circumstances that would keep us away from the church. But even then, we can participate and engage with the church by, by leaning into the church and receiving the care and love of the church as it extends to us. And we can make it clear that our identification is still not only with Jesus, but with his people, even if circumstances constrain us. And of course, there are churches that are, that are churches in name only where the gospel is not preached and the sacraments do not point to God's grace. But the solution is not to abandon the church altogether, but to find a church where the gospel is clearly pre preached and where God's grace is treasured and held up and magnified. I'm afraid we can easily give up on the church because of relational struggles, forgetting that any church that was free of relational struggles before we arrived would not be so afterwards. We all bring our own baggage with us, don't we? We could uh, perhaps adopt the attitude of Groucho Marx. I would never join a club that would have me as a member. Um, now, that's a funny line, but we see what's lacking, don't we? The value of unity, the command of Christ, the ability to love one another as he commands. The church is the house that Jesus is building. Don't remain outside. Because when it comes to the church, to know her is to love her. And to love her is to love Jesus. Secondly, the church is a body. One of the attractions of playing with Mr. Potato Head is the ability to locate limbs and features any which way. So the nose and an ear hole, no problem. Arm on top of the head, why not? 
He was the original plug-and-play device, and children delighted in the absurd creations they conjured. It's this way because every part is interchangeable. They all attach no matter where you place them. But even though they attach anywhere, they don't necessarily fit anywhere. The toy is absurd because we all know what he's supposed to look like. We can place the nose in an ear hole, but we know that it won't function that way, and that's not the way it's supposed to be. Well, so it goes with the church. The church is a body, and it's a body designed by God and meant to function according to his purpose. So there is a method to this madness. So what we're going to do is examine those purposes by looking at the body in connection with last week's sermon on the Holy Spirit. As Pete was preaching to us about the Holy Spirit, I was seeing all kinds of connection, and I'm a little afraid I'm going to go way over time trying to draw on them. Because the church is where the Holy Spirit's work is primarily visible. You want to talk about the work of the Spirit. Here is the work of the Spirit. And I don't mean this building. The best place to see these connections are in 1 Corinthians 12. And unfortunately, we don't have enough time to to really dive into this chapter. There's so much here. I think we are hoping to do a sermon series on this uh, sooner rather than later. So we're just going to dip in here and there. So first, let's look at verses 4 to 7. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So this is how the Spirit works in our midst. He works broadly, He works individually, and He works for the common good. Pete introduced a phrase last week, the broad work of the Spirit. It's a terribly helpful phrase. The broad work of the Spirit. Uh, And and here even, uh, what's interesting in these verses is you see it's a Trinitarian work, right? Varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. Varieties of service, but the same Lord. And varieties of activities, but it's the same God. It's the Trinitarian God who works in His people. The, The work of the Spirit in the church is the work of the Godhead. And this God works much more broadly than we might recognize. Um, I I grew up wildly charismatic. Um, Our our pastor had a shofar, a ram's horn. And and when worship was really rocking, the ram's horn came out. And uh, and that thing had a tiny... Man, that was hard to blow, but he could could do it. And he did what we, uh, as children, irreverently called the Holy Spirit two-step. And so if you've been around the, the classic charismatic movement, you've seen, I'm not going to demonstrate, but um, no, 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 There's, you do not want that image burned into your retinas. Um, and so it was no thing for us to push all the chairs to the side and dance around and uh, regularly having healing services and people standing up with tongues in the middle of the meeting. Um, so we were fully charismatic. And, and there's two things I'm especially grateful for from that church. One is the passion for God. These folks love Jesus. And, and they wanted to demonstrate their love for Jesus. And they were willing to do anything for him. Uh, there was a, an authenticity in their passion. This wasn't manufactured. It wasn't put on. This was love for their Savior. And that stuck with me. That marked me as a young man. And also their love, their passion for God's word. They valued the Bible. The Bible was clearly the authority in our church. Whatever we understand.
the Bible to teach. That's what we wanted to believe and do. And that has marked me. I, I can look back now and see some theological deficiencies there. But it wasn't because they were depreciating or setting the Bible to the side. And so that love for God's Word is uh, so commendable. But, but as I look now and I look through the years and, and, and what God has done and where He's brought us, I said, you know, what differences do I see between the church I was raised in and, and where we've come to now? And I think there's two primary differences. The first is gospel clarity. Uh, we had the gospel in that church, in, in, at least in some senses, evangelistically. I knew that I was a sinner, and I knew that Jesus died for sinners, and that I needed to be forgiven. But it, it never made a lot of sense for me. There wasn't, there wasn't the idea of penal substitutionary atonement, that my sin had incurred the wrath of God, and that I needed someone to take the penalty that my sin deserved so that I could be forgiven, so God's wrath could be taken off my head. Or the idea of Jesus' righteousness, that I needed His righteousness that I could stand before God, holy and perfect. Those truths weren't held up. And so even though I knew that I needed Jesus, in some sense, there was a lot of confusion there. And where that especially walked out was in day-to-day life. So the idea that the gospel would function beyond your initial salvation. That it wasn't just, Jesus came to save sinners, you're a sinner, trust in Jesus and go to heaven. Because that's not how it happens for most of us. We don't trust in Christ and instantly we're in heaven. We have this life. We have these years. We have these relationships and struggles. We have our own personal sins. And so how do I, how do I deal with that? How do I grow? I see patterns of failure in my life. What do I do? And the idea that the same grace that saved me is the grace that transforms me. It's not a different method, that it's not some mechanism. It's not how many spiritual disciplines I do or how much I pray or how much money I give or how many times I speak in tongues or any of these things, but that the grace of God that saves me is the grace of God that transforms me and that I need to grow in my understanding of his grace. We had, we had no category for that. And so it was very confusing. It was very difficult as a youth. I, I remember praying and, and um, you know, putting on the armor of God and praying in tongues and looking for all, you know, how am I going to do this? And, and deep confusion. Honestly, it wasn't until I was 29 years old and came to this church that I had any category of the gospel for day-to-day life. That was entirely new for me. And related to that was a, a, a faulty understanding of conversion. What did it mean for someone to be a Christian? What did it mean to trust in Jesus? My Christianity was primarily what I did, or even more so, what I didn't do. And, and, and to understand the work of the Spirit in conversion, I had no categories for those things. So to understand that biblically, there's only two, person, there's two types of persons. There are those who are saved and unsaved, or we might say it this way. There, there are those who are spiritually dead and those who are spiritually alive. And the difference between the two is the work of the Holy Spirit in taking out a heart of stone and putting in a heart of flesh so that we are born again, so that Jesus goes from being foolishness to being the the treasure, the Savior, the one that we most desperately need. That instead of rejecting Him, we turn to Him in faith. And that every Christian has experienced that work of the Spirit. So every Christian is spiritual. And in some sense, Spirit-filled. That's one of Paul's favorite terms, these pneumaticas, these spiritual ones. 
Christians are by definition spiritual persons. So, you know, one very practical application of that as a parent. What grace from God that your children have parents who are born again by the Holy Spirit of God and have access to the Holy Spirit of God to love them and to instruct them and to care for them and to repent of their anger. And to, it's an incredible mercy from God to have parents who've been born again. And all Christians are that type of person. There's not two kinds of Christians, those with the Spirit and those without. All Christians have the Spirit. That's by definition what makes us a Christian is the Spirit acting upon us. So all Christians have been baptized in the Spirit. We've been born again by the Spirit of God. And so the work of the Holy Spirit is much broader than we can readily recognize. Uh, In our church we had, for all that we taught and celebrated the person and work of the Holy Spirit, we actually had an overly narrow uh, definition and too low of an expectation. Because the Spirit is at work in thousands of ways. So why are you here this morning? Why do you care? Why do you have God's Word? Why do you read it? Why do you love those around you? Why do the ushers put on their UPS uniforms and serve us, right? (laughs) Why, Why are folks down in children's ministry instructing our little ones? Why do you go to care group and love and pray for and weep with one another? Why do you bring meals to someone? Why do you give gifts to those in need? Why do you do any of the thousands of things that you do? Because the Holy Spirit is at work. And we dare not slander Him by saying that if it isn't a particular manifestation, that He's not at work. Because He is much more broadly at work than we can readily recognize. What are the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. So anytime you see any of those things... The Holy Spirit is at work. He's at work. You came this morning. You greeted one another. You asked about somebody. You you sought somebody out because you were concerned for them. You've prayed for them this past week. Why do you do those things? The Holy Spirit is at work. He is at work so broadly in this church. It's one of the great advantages of joining a local church is you get to live alongside folks and see the Holy Spirit at work in their lives. It is glorious. And it brings much glory to God because we know that we are by nature children of wrath. And so why would we love God or anyone else? Because the Holy Spirit's at work. And there's so much to celebrate. There's, a, um, there's two categories of, uh, of Christian living. There's the objective, and the gospel is entirely objective. Luther would say the gospel is entirely outside of us. Jesus was a man who's not us, a God-man, who lived. He came as a baby. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross uh, for our sins. And because he had never sinned, Sin and death had no hold on him, and so he rose again, triumphant. And all those truths happened in history with actual men and women around him. And it was really Pilate, and it was really Herod, and it was really uh, the centurions rejecting, reviling, mocking, crucifying. All those things are objective. They're historical facts. They've happened. And all those historical facts do us no good if they don't subjectively apply to our lives. If I'm not trusting in Jesus Christ, 
then his life, death, and resurrection have no value to me other than to condemn me. And so I must trust in Jesus Christ. I must subjectively apply these objective truths. And one of the things that I loved and and continue to love about this church is the mix of objective and, and subjective. That there are objective truths that we love and declare and treasure. And that, and that there is a subjective experience that we love and declare and treasure. That I experienced passionate worship. And I experienced warm hospitality. And I experienced gracious counsel. Those are all subjective uh, manifestations of this objective truth. And there's a temptation and a tendency for both Christians uh, individually and for churches to go one way or the other. To go objective because we're so suspicious and fearful of the subjective. You know, what might happen if we pursue the Holy Spirit too passionately? What might happen if we open ourselves up or if we emphasize uh, a warm-hearted piety? And then there's the, the tendency to pursue the, the subjective at the expense of the objective. And, and I think that was one of the weaknesses of the church of my youth. It was very experience-driven. And we were always looking for the next experience. Waiting to, you know, where is the Holy Spirit moving? I've got to go there. Um, and, and, and pitting experience against doctrine. And missing the biblical truth that doctrine isn't just a safeguard, though it is that, very importantly so. But that doctrine actually drives and motivates our experience of God. Because doctrine tells us who God is and tells us what it looks like to pursue Him. And so we don't pit these things against one another. They're complementary. There are objective truths that we must know and treasure and grow in our knowledge of. And they must manifest themselves in our lives in passionate pursuit of God. And that the fuel for this pursuit is these objective truths that we subjectively experience. I think for uh, time considerations, I'm going to skip my other point here in 1 Corinthians 12. The church is a body, and we are sovereignly arranged by God. He works in each of us for the common good. And do you see that? He works in each of us for the common good. And we're a body arranged by God in such a way that none of us would have arranged. I wouldn't have picked you, and you wouldn't have picked me, and we wouldn't have come together in this way. God has built this church. And he brings us together and he works in us individually for the common good. And he calls us to love one another. Uh, I was reading this week, 2 Thessalonians. And Paul is commending the Thessalonians. And it's one of those, you know, just introductory comments that Paul makes and uh, we, we can tend to gloss over. But in 2 Thessalonians 1.3, he says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. So your faith is growing abundantly, and your love for one another is increasing. I don't think there's higher praise that could be given to a church. That our faith is growing abundantly. We are glorifying God by how we trust Him, and that our love for one another is increasing. That is amazing mercy. And and as I saw it here, it pops up all over the place. He says to Timothy, you know, the goal of our love is uh, a pure heart, a sincere faith, and a... uh, I'm going to butcher it. Look it up yourself. You'll find it. (laughs) 
Yeah. And, and it's in his other letters too. Faith and love. Faith and love. What should mark a church? Faith and love. Faith in God. We're trusting God. Love for one another. And those things are remarkable because they're so unusual, which we're going to get to here in a moment. So he calls us to love one another. There's no room for standoffishness or condescending attitudes. We've been joined together into one. And as we function together with each part knowing its place, we glorify him and express together our love for him. Because to know her, to know the church is to love her. And to love her is to love him. Finally, the church is a bride. Sometimes life forces unexpected choices upon us in a dramatic fashion. At those moments, our true loves are often revealed. Two years ago, Erin Wood and her husband Brian were driving through Washington State to visit family. The driver of an oncoming Chevy Blazer tried to take off her sweater as the passenger in the front seat took the wheel, causing the car to swerve directly into the path of their car. In a split-second decision... Brian pressed hard on the brakes and veered the car to the right so the blazer would hit him first at impact, saving the life of his wife and unborn child. Aaron said, It's pretty obvious if you look at the car that it would have been a head-on crash and we both would have been killed right along with our own baby. Brian saved two lives that morning at the cost of his own. Now listen to Paul's words in Ephesians 5. In light of Brian's sacrifice. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. We see these words as our standard for a husband's love. And rightly so. These these are go-to verses for marital counseling. A husband is to love his wife sacrificially, laying down his life, sometimes in actuality, for her good and sanctification. We husbands are to work hard at seeing our wives grow in godliness and love out of our love for them. But we can overlook that the ground of a husband's love for his wife is the love that Jesus has shown us, his people. These words are convicting for husbands inasmuch as we have experienced the lavish love of God for us. We have experienced his sacrificial love. We are to love our wives because Jesus loves the church and just as Jesus loves the church. To be a husband is to be called to extend gospel love to a woman for life. So there's a specificity, there's an intentionality in a husband's love toward his wife that marks her as his own and identifies them with one another both privately and publicly. So Jesus' love towards the church marks us. It's his specific and identifying love. It, It actually creates our identities and entitles us to all the privileges of being loved by him and belonging to him. But this belonging is a two-way street, isn't it? What would you say to a man who's wearing a ring and he can point to his wife across the room? But then you go and talk to her and she says, I 
I've never met him, and I'm certainly not married to him. Well, that's a little creepy, isn't it? It's, uh, it's more than a little creepy. A, a true relationship requires identification and reciprocity. It needs to be both ways. That's why we give rings and change names and have public ceremonies. Relationships like this are meant to be known and celebrated. So then what do we say to a Christian who does not belong to a local church? It will not do to drift through life claiming to belong to Jesus and refusing to identify with his people. We saw this in the last point too. Joining a local church and identifying with a specific people is a very important expression of our identifying with Christ. So think about his words in Matthew 10. Jesus said, verse 32, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. So our interactions with the church and with a local church are a very important application of our identifying with Jesus, of our acknowledging him before men. So, so think about the sacraments. Why do we do baptism? It's not just so this person can have a personal subjective religious experience. There is that aspect to it. But it's an identification with Christ and with his church. They're identifying with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And Christ is identifying with them and saying, the life that I now live, I live in Christ Jesus. And it's saying, welcome to the church. Welcome to the body of those who have identified with Jesus. That's why we do baptism. And why do we do membership? Because it's a way for us to identify with one another. It's a way for us to meaningfully walk out what it means to be a Christian. Uh, Communion's that way as well. We're going to partake of communion in a little bit. That's our ongoing identification with Christ. It's saying, I'm still here and I am still deeply in need of your grace. And my life still has many challenges. And I'm so grateful that your death covered all my sins. And I'm so grateful that you will not renounce me, that you were faithful even when I am faithless. And I'm so grateful that you've put me in a body of those around me who know me and love me and will point me to you. And, and yes, my life is, has sin, but I am turning from my sin to you. Christians aren't those who haven't sinned. They're those who've repented from their sins and continue to repent from our sins. And so communion is a fresh opportunity to identify with Jesus and with his people. And we talked about that in our sacrament series. One of the things we liked about doing communion where, where we all come forward is seeing all the people, thinking of all the stories of God's grace, all the ways that he's at work in us. So communion is an expression of that. It's acknowledging Jesus before men. And church discipline is an expression of that. It's a difficult topic. It's not an easy topic. Uh, We have an appendix if you have the Explore binder in the back. There's an appendix on church discipline. But it's necessary. Because if someone sins and then persists in their sin, and you go to them and they reject you, and they persist some more, and you bring another and they reject you, and they persist some more, and through a loving, patient, but, but directive process, we keep crying out, don't go this way, don't do that, don't persist in that sin. And they reject And the issue is not as much the sin as the lack of repentance. That they don't turn back to Christ. That the church as church needs to say, we can no longer identify with you. We must excommunicate you. We don't know your heart. God knows your heart. And you may give a profession of faith. 
But if your behavior uh, undermines your profession of faith because you're you're calling good what is evil and you're claiming the license of Christ for wickedness, then, then we cannot affirm that profession. We cannot identify with you. We cannot support you in what you're doing. And so church discipline historically has been a very important hallmark of a faithful church that takes holiness seriously, that takes grace seriously. It's always a patient process. It's always a a restorative process. It's not shunning. We don't want to equate it with kind of the Amish practice of we're going to have nothing to do with you. We're going to have something to do with you. We're going to love you and we're going to cry out to you to repent. We're going to call you back to Christ. But we're not going to identify you with you as a brother or a sister because of your lack of repentance. And so church discipline is, is an important expression of us acknowledging Jesus before men collectively. So our identifying with God's people is a primary expression of our identifying with Jesus before men. And then just think of John 13, verse 34. Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So you become a Christian. And you go to Jesus. You say, Jesus, I want to be a disciple. I want to, I want to love you. I want to be faithful. I'm, you know, I'm fired up. I'm ready to go. What do I do? What, what's to be the hallmark of Christian discipleship? What's, what's the greatest thing I could do? And Jesus says, this is how all men will know that you're my disciple. By your love for one another. Your love for one another. Of all the things he could have said. Your love for one another. It's an amazing mark. It's amazing because it's difficult. I'm, I'm hard to love. You're hard to love. <laughs> and it's amazing because it's rare. For all the talk in the, in the wider world of love, true love, enduring love, faithful love, love that seeks the good of the other instead of love that's so caught up in myself and that somebody's making much of me, humble love is rare. That someone would stick with you through difficulty. That, that my friends love me when I sin against them and when I'm ridiculous. It's rare. And it points to the grace of God. Why would they love me? Because Jesus has loved them. And they know that their sins uh, would not engender love for anyone else, but they've experienced the love of God, that contra-conditional, against the conditions, against what we present, against our rebellion and sinfulness. God has loved us. So we can love one another, truly, enduringly, through difficulty. So all this loving and serving and exhorting and encouraging that, that we're to do together is going to culminate one day. We live together and love one another as we seek to spur each other on to prepare ourselves for that final day. And you'll remember this from our series in Revelation just a few months ago, in Revelation 19. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. 
If you are in Christ, you've been invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so that's what all this is about. We're trying to spur each other on. We're trying to hold each other up. We're loving one another so that we will endure in faith until Jesus comes and we experience the marriage supper of the Lamb. All of this is preparation for that day and all that comes after that day as we're in His presence in ways that are unfathomable now that I just cannot imagine without sin, without pain, without disappointment, without frustration, being fully loved, being known, and knowing fully. So say what you will about the church, but we are the bride of Christ. No husband has ever loved his wife more demonstrably and more sacrificially and more extravagantly than Jesus has. No husband has ever set about making his wife more loved and beautiful than Jesus has. No husband has ever treasured his wife more than Jesus has. The church is the bride of Christ. And if I can feel a holy jealousy for my wife's good name, imagine the zeal that Jesus has for his people, for his bride, the church. To know her is to love her, and to love her is to love him. Does your engagement with the church reflect these realities that we just unpacked, that we looked at? Or say it another way, does your practice of church reflect the theological priorities that Scripture commends to us? I want to speak to, to two ways I think we can be uh, practically, practically, functionally separated from the church. The first is more geared towards younger folks, but I think it can affect any of us, and that's the, the lure of cynical, cool detachment. So if you're a fan of uh, David Letterman or... Uh, John Stewart or Stephen Colbert, uh, you might think that cynicism and irony are the height of comedy and cool. And you might think that it's cool to stay aloof and disconnected. Uh, maybe you can sit on meetings and make fun of them or uh, discuss all the shortcomings of those around you. And there's an attraction to being cool because you never have to attach your name to anyone who's less cool. And generally speaking, one doesn't go to church to find the cool people. And in the process, what you miss out on is true love and on loyalty and on friendship. You miss out on the deep connections that only come from loving someone through suffering and awkwardness and offense and pain. You miss out on actually building something as you sit to the side like the two old guys and the Muppets and make fun of everyone. You, you can make fun, but ask yourself this. Who's standing apart? Who's isolated? And what does your coolness cost you? And who's going to stand with you when you do something uncool? Jesus loves his church, which means that if you believe in Jesus, if you've trusted in Christ, that he loves you. He loves you with all your awkwardness and all your struggles and all your blemishes, with all your fears and your failures and shortcomings, with your, your uh, secret sins and your patterns of failure. And so you might be tempted to stay aloof from the church for fear of being labeled uncool. But Jesus has already identified with the most uncool people who ever lived, you and me. If anyone ever suffered from uncoolness by association, it was Jesus. The second application is broader. With, with every doctrine, there's the challenge, the, the struggle of head knowledge and heart knowledge. And so we can know something's true. We can even strongly affirm that it's true. 
without actually applying it very well to our lives. We do this all the time. So we can, con- we can agree conceptually and theoretically uh, on the priority of the local church without really applying those truths to our lives. And I think the, the biggest challenge that we face today in applying these truths is busyness. We know that the church is good and we want to be engaged. But there are lots of other things that ask for, or even in some cases demand, our attention. I found that with my smartphone. It's a dumb thing. But if I have the volume on and an email rings, I feel compelled. Like, I have to, what was that? I have to check it out right now. But our lives are full. That's a little thing. Our lives are full of all kinds of beeps and clicks and demands. And I'm not just talking about technology because there's so many other things. Uh, Because of our relative affluence and because of technological advances, we have far more options, far more legitimate demands on on our time than most folks who've ever lived. Um, Just consider, living in Lancaster, how much simpler your life would be. Not necessarily better, but simpler. If you didn't have a car, and you didn't have electricity, and you didn't have a telephone, how much simpler would your life be? You, You wouldn't be able to drive anywhere. You'd walk or take a horse. You wouldn't be able to call anybody. You wouldn't be able to turn on anything electrical. How much simpler would your life be? And all those things, blessings that they are, also bring demands. Demand things from us. And, and open up to us worlds. Uh, you know, for Alyssa to go to South Africa, she doesn't have to get on a boat and journey for months. She's going to fly there in a matter of hours. We're able to do things that most people could never have imagined. And all these things bring demands on our time. So to be, a, to be a member of a local church requires certain things from you. It requires time for meetings and events and fellowships. It, it requires your money. It requires your prayers. And then your vocation requires things from you. And if you're married and have children, that requires things from you. And if you have a favorite hobby or TV show or pastime, those all require things from you. To whom much is given, much is required. And Jesus said those words in the context of spiritual accountability. But I think as 21st century Americans, we feel those things in a thousand little ways every day. We've been given much, and it requires much from us. And so we might say, well, I can't make care group tonight. I have to work. Or my kids can't come to DOXA. They have a soccer game. Or I can't go to Vital Life. That's my bowling night. Or I can't go to the solar retreat. There's a lost marathon on that weekend. All of these examples are, are legitimate in their own way. None of them is explicitly immoral. And they can all be performed out of humble faith in gratitude to God. But these examples and 10,000 more are always clamoring for our attention and our affections. And at least in my own life, the temptation can be to take the static things for granted, uh, like regular church meetings, like family activities that are recurring, and to focus on the exceptions. So what if I miss this week? I'll be back next week. And the problem is that our lives quickly become full of exceptions. And instead of solidifying the church as our priority, it becomes the exception because life crowds it out. So how do we set about evaluating the priority of the church in our lives? I'm going to leave you with two practical truths and two questions. First, our passions drive our priorities. We always make room for what we value. And of course, the classic example of this is the young man who has found the girl of his dreams. He has all kinds of time for her. He will find time. It doesn't matter what other things are on his schedule. He is going to find time for this woman. Because a a passion has flamed up. His heart has been captured. And he's going to pursue her. 
So our passions always drive our priorities. What we most want, what we most love affects our priorities. And yes, circumstances can occasionally constrain us, but if we were to sit down and look at your calendar and your checkbook for you know, six months, we could probably get a pretty good idea of what your passions are. What are your priorities? What do you spend your time and money on? Because our passions drive our priorities. The other is that our priorities influence our passions. So what we devote ourselves to and give time to influences us. The more time and money and effort we invest into something, the more oriented toward that thing we become. So you, you could take up golf as a fun hobby, but then you've got to go out and you've got to buy the, the clubs and the equipment and the clothing, and then maybe you get a membership, and, and then, well, I got all this stuff, I've spent all this money, now I've got to use it. And so you start to build it into your schedule, and then you get out, and you're playing, and you're terrible, and you want to get better. And so you work on it, and you get better. And the better you get, the more you want to play. And so golf goes from this innocent pastime to a scheduled priority. What we invest in influences our passions. So you'll care more about something that you have an investment in. So the challenge now is to take these categories and to do some evaluation. And so uh, I'd ask you to take some time, like intentionally carve aside, carve aside some time this week and sit down and just consider and pray and discuss. Look at your priorities. Look at your schedule. What is driving? What are the passions? What has risen to the top and what's being pushed further down? Um, two, two simple questions that you can ask of any activity. The first is, at the end of that activity, can you thank God for it? It's a very helpful evaluatory tool. So you just watched a movie. Can you say, God, I thank you for this movie. It was a good use of my time, and it glorified you. Very simple evaluatory tool. The second is, does my engagement with the various activities of life accurately reflect the priorities that Scripture lays out for me? So... There's a tendency to busy lives. Uh, I think especially for parents. Um, there's so many activities and demands that can be placed upon us. You know, I'm not going to de- deny my children anything. They're going to get the best education. They're going to get the best extracurriculars. They're going to do math and science and art and music and sports and, and, and other things. And, and these things... Uh, drive us, control us, because each of those things has a schedule, and each of those things has a cost. And before we know it, we look at our calendars, and we're jam-packed, and we're exhausted. And Jesus said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What does it profit you to, to cram your life full of activities and forfeit your soul? To, to deprioritize what God has called us to prioritize. I don't think we're in danger of depriving our children. But I do think we can be in danger of idolizing our children and making them too high of a priority and allowing our lives to be driven by all these other activities. So remember, the Father had a plan from time immortal to save a people who'd be called by his name. And he covenanted with his son to come to this earth at great personal cost to purchase this people with his life. And his love for you was so extravagant that he laid down everything to call you to himself. And as he's called you, he has joined you to a spiritual house and to a body and to a bride. He has made you his own. 
And now he calls you to live out your love for him in loving those that he has loved. He's called you to his church. Because to know her is to love her, and to love her is to love him. Let's pray. Father, your, your love truly never fails. Here we are called by your name. Here we are knowing your goodness and mercy and grace. And you've called us together. You've called us to love one another. Pray that you would work in our hearts in such a way that it would be uh, our joy to pursue you in growing in faith and growing in our love for one another in this church, in this body. May you be magnified in us. May our hearts rejoice in all the ways that you've shown your goodness to us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information, head to our website at crosswaypa.org.